City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City Limits. This is the fourth. Is it the fourth Wednesday? I think it's the fifth. It's the fifth. (laughs) The the magical fifth Wednesday. You just missed the fourth. That's why Mm. you think it's the fourth. Sorry. Kevin and I were here last week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just Megan and I, Eugenia, in the studio today. So good morning, everyone. Um, Do you want to introduce what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, well, it's, you know, the fifth Wednesday of the month, so... We have special, special guests. Um, we have, who was it from Teach for Australia? Yes, yeah, so Emily Pearson, who's from Teach for Australia, who's just going to talk to us about that organisation and what they do and some, some of the issues around educational inequity that exist in Victoria and tell us about a new tool that they've developed that lets people um, check their postcode and what kind of level of um, inequity they might be facing in that area. Hmm. So Teacher Australia is this, uh, they've been around for maybe five years, I'm, I'm thinking, just from my knowledge. Um, and they place um, students who are learning to be teachers, who are doing their masters of teaching, they learn by an internship basically and are in the field. But they're placed in um, schools in like rural remote areas or areas that are considered disadvantaged areas, right? Mm, yeah, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> Cool. And the other guest that we have is Hannah Orby, who's from the Centre for Public Integrity. <clears throat> so that's um, something that's been in the news lately. Um, she launched that centre last week or the week before in Sydney. Yeah, right. Fresh. Yeah. It's freshy fresh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to hear all about it. Is that a non-profit organisation? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> is that a joke? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be like a government-funded thing rather than an independent one. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fair enough. The government wouldn't be funding. (laughs) They're really not. They're really not funding that. Yeah, yeah, which of course is very interesting given all the stuff that's been in the papers and on the radios and on TV lately about the Crown scandal. Right. So there was something on the Seventh Day Report. I watched that. Yeah. What have you seen? Uh, well, I was reading a few papers this morning and there's lots of headlines about um, Chinese uh, kind of wealthy um, business people with connections to uh, like lobbyist organisations that are kind of pushing Chinese interests in Australia. Okay. But the scandal is that these people who have lots of money have been kind of granted um, fast-tracked visas to come to Australia and allegedly, and spend lots of money at Crown Casino. So there's there's oh. there's a whole bunch of um what? a whole bunch of stuff tied in there about the the ministers of being aware that these people are kind of a bit, you know, dodgy and in, making it easier for them to get visas and then all, obviously also Crown being involved and possible money laundering going on. So No. It'd be great Alleged to hear what Hannah laundering. had to say about all that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that she would have been keeping up with this. But that's that's exactly the stuff that has to be looked at is because um, those kind of uh, interests 
and the even if whether they're accurate or not if you have a body that examines them in a public forum then they can be um you know taken out of the equation when people think about governance and politics so that yeah. the sort of public faith in our public institutions can actually be higher yeah that's because, right yeah the studies show that um, that it's dropping. Yeah. That people are sceptical about whether our politicians are acting on our best interests. Yeah, and yeah. for good reason, seemingly. Yeah. So one of the things I was listening to on our end this morning was that um, the government's proposed that the investigation into this whole uh, saga happens through a, a body who's an acronym I can't oh. remember at the moment. Is it the National Integrity Commission? No, no, oh. it's, it's IL something something. Okay. But anyway, the this body has powers to investigate um, whether law enforcement officials are doing their job properly. Okay. Which sounds good. Yeah. But it also means that um, that they don't actually have the power to investigate the ministers themselves, which is very interesting, right? Classic. <laughs> so their authority kind of stop, like reaches a ceiling pretty yeah. quickly. And I think, I mean, Hannah will clear this up, but I think there's no body for federal government that is an independent body that investigates. I think mm, what happens yeah. is that it's just like, oh, we'll just investigate ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Which is problematic. Yeah. And I suppose the idea is that if they have, uh, if they investigate corruption within like um, police and, and other investigative bodies, then the idea is that, that somehow police will like find if, if people are doing something wrong. But there's such grey areas in politics. Yeah. Like totally. who's doing something wrong if this, this people who make the rules say it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the if the people who are being investigated are the ones who are setting the terms of reference exactly. of the investigation, it exactly. doesn't really work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well. Murky territory today. And so, yeah, that would be the second interview with Hannah and the second half of the show. Yeah. Um, there was also a bit of news about the Coolaroo recycling plant fire. So we've talked about this a lot on the show. Um, Helen Van Berg has been very vocal about things that are happening in the western suburbs and um, so there's been a press release from Madden's lawyers who've represented um, 210 residents, landowners and businesses impacted by the July 2017 recycling plant fire. Mm. Um, so they're expecting to get the outcome from the class action uh, at the settlement approval hearing on the 1st of August 2019. Mm, soon. That's really soon. So um, <clears throat> I do and, and what does that mean for those communities more Well, for them, I think they're expected to get compensation. Um, yeah. So that it will be if, – if the approval is granted, it's, it's expected the compensation will be distributed to individuals and businesses participating in the class action. Uh, within months. So uh, that may have to do with why SKM is talking about going into receivership. Yeah. Yeah. Have you well, seen it, that? It has. Hasn't it, it has. Or I don't know exactly whether it has or hasn't, but it stopped accepting recycling exactly. from all those councils. So um, yeah. I think, I can't remember the statistics, I think it was like right. 60% of that that used that is recyclable, that used to be recycled, is now actually just going into landfill. Just, because yeah. there's just literally nowhere else to put it and nothing else to do with it. And, of course, the history behind that also is related to China again. Again, So yeah. uh, the Chinese – we used to export all of our recycling to China, which is, you know, astounding <laughs> from an environmental perspective. Yeah. And then in 2017, the Chinese government changed the regulations around that to kind of 
understandably limit the amount of waste that they would accept from other countries. Yeah. And so, you know, Victoria didn't have a plan B and it turns out that we still don't no. have one. <laughs> this is this is what happens when you rely on the capitalist ideology to solve a problem of mm. waste and like uh, like a kind of exploitation of resources you know like we're going to just keep on making waste we're going to keep on using plastic and then if these businesses can sell it to china to places in china businesses in china then they're going to collect it because they're going to make money from waste yeah but if they can't sell it they can't make any money so they're not going to keep collecting it (laughs) no one's they're not doing a social service like yeah 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 it's also just um funny to me that you can yeah, it, like you said, the capitalist mindset is just kind of like put the problem somewhere out of sight and out of mind. You know, we exactly. can pay somebody to look after it and then we'll yeah. take all our recycling offshore or we don't have to think about it uh-huh. and it's like it doesn't even exist. Exactly. You know? This whole um, consumptive system that our economy is based on. Like if you can't see it, it's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I went to a recycling plant in Hobart when I was living oh. there. That's pretty interesting. I'd love to go to a recycling plant. Oh, it was super, super interesting. And I went with a friend who was investigating it for her workplace. Oh. Because they wanted to know um, – <clears throat> it was a school, actually. They wanted to know, like, how to direct the kids and the families to um, to sort of, like, package kids' f- meals and snacks and whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, th- that's when I realised for the first time ever that – that the system was to collect up all of the plastics and cardboard, separate up the cardboard from the plastic, separate all the different types of plastic. I think there's like seven types. And um, and then compact it into these huge bricks, like wow. the size of a room, and put them on the back of a boat and sail them to China. No and I was like, what happens in China or wherever they go? And they get melted down and made into like cheap plastic toys huh. and then get just get, you know, sold. Sold back yeah, to us. Exactly. Wow. And I was like, oh, so recycling it doesn't work. Like this is the rule of <laughs> science and the rule of life is that nothing goes away. Yeah. Whatever's here, it just is, it takes a different form. Yeah, cuz I guess if they're kind of really like bad quality disposable things that are being made out of that as well. They the, get thrown away. They just gets perpetuated. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, but the, the Green, there was also an article in the paper this morning about the Greens pushing for the state government to construct its own recycling facility in Victoria. Oh, like wow. Like a state-owned one. A public recycling facility. Oh, no. How <laughs> radical, right? <laughs> Actual state-owned infrastructure. <laughs> Um, That's not going to work. There's, there'll be no market forces on it. <laughs> well, they did some sort of. The article was about some sort of economic study that they did to prove that it was actually going to make money over a ten-year period. Yeah, because obviously we don't have to pay somebody else to do that for us, yeah. and we don't have to buy all this kind of. You know, mm-hmm. they were planning to make plastic pellets that then could be sold to okay. manufacturers to make other stuff. So you yeah, know, you, you can actually sell make the things, product that you yeah. make with it. Yeah, like making things here that are bought and sold here, like yeah. chairs and play equipment and things of like, yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. that is. And that's what, you know, mm-hmm. I was wondering if there are actually companies that do make stuff out of plastic in Victoria. I'm not even sure. I feel like it all comes from China. I know there are some in Australia, but I'm not sure where they are. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, th- I think it has to be a particular type of plastic. Yeah. Okay. And ultimately we really have to look at ourselves and be like, why are we producing so much waste? Like it's gotten, it's pretty crazy. Like just from the time when I was a kid until now, 
you it's very hard to actually go and buy things without plastic yeah like it, i've really it really is hard <laughs> i actually yeah i had a funny moment this week because my partner's gone away so i'm living by myself and i always thought he was the one that generates all the waste in our house <laughs> but i've yeah i've looked at our recycling bin this morning and it was kind of overflowing with all these various like plastic boxes from exactly. spinach and yeah. milk and yeah, tofu. And, yeah, yeah, everything comes in packaging, basically. Everything comes in packaging. And if you don't want to get it in packaging, it's literally a whole day to go shopping. Yeah. Like, you have to go to this place to get some yeah. milk in a bottle. You have to go to this place to get, like, a homemade tofu without any wrapping and bring your own jar or whatever. Like, <laughs> it's really an effort. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's quite a reckoning when you see that. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm just one person, you know? Yeah. Should we have a song and, and yeah, let's let's take a break and then yeah. we can chat to Emily from Teach for Australia.
You're listening to City Limits. Um, I'm Meg Kimber and I'm here with Eugenia and we're joined by Emily yeah. from Teach for Australia. Um, Emily, thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And uh, so just can you tell us, first of all, a bit broadly about what Teach for Australia is and what it does? Yeah, not a problem at all. So at Teach for Australia, we believe that the strongest levers to close the gap in education outcomes between students from low and high SES households is for effective teaching and school leadership. So we're a not-for-profit organisation um, that has a vision for an Australia where all students, regardless of their background, um, obtain a quality education. So we aspire to recruit Australia's future leaders um, and inspire, connect and empower them to a lifetime of action to address education inequity. Um, and we build this commitment in our participants um, through starting them with a the teaching experience. So we rigorously recruit high-achieving individuals um, and they'll then take an alternative entry pathway into teaching in secondary schools um, that need them the most. So with these schools often struggling to attract teachers, particularly those from certain subject specialisations like maths and science, for example. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So much to unpack there. Um, maybe can we start by just learning a bit more about uh, what issues exist in, with educational inequity in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would just say that it is hard to distill it down. Um, educational disadvantage is very complex and multifaceted. Um, we see that the levels of educational disadvantage can differ across neighbouring postcodes within our country um, and we also know that it can range within postcodes too. Um, so most importantly though, we would say that uh, it's a very real issue in our country of students not having access to education op opportunities to reach their full potential um, and that there's a very pressing need to take action against this. Mm. And, and what does that actually look like concretely for students? Like, uh, Is it the kind of teachers that are in the schools or the kind of infrastructure that they have access to? What, yeah, what does that look As like? As in the, the problem of educational disadvantage? Yeah, so if, you know, the, what are the differences that we're looking at between schools that are disadvantaged and not disadvantaged? There's lots of different differences. I guess I'm reluctant to distill it down to just one. Um, you're right in that in some instances it is um, infrastructure. I um, mean, in many instances it's access, so access to um, teachers, uh, particularly those from certain subject specialisations, access to resources, um, access to social capital as well to form connections um, to understand opportunities post-school. Mm. So how does Teacher Australia decide which schools their, their, um, their teachers go into? So we will only partner with schools that work in low socioeconomic communities um, and have a classification uh, of being disadvantaged uh, through something called an ICSIA or an Index of Community Socio-Educational Advantage. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and so our partner schools look different depending on where they are in Australia, as I'm sure you can imagine being a very multicultural country. Um, and we have our participants moving to those regions um, for a two-year period while they complete the program um, and many do stay in their partner school afterwards. What, how, many, how many stay as a sort of a percentage? So of all of our alumni that have gone through the program, just under 70% remain teaching um, or leading in schools um, and we find just less than that remain in a school that's eligible for our program, so a school that would be classified as disadvantaged. Right. So, and do people stay at the same school where they... Um, did their two years? Yeah, many do. Um, we do see movement within our partner schools though. So through the alumni network, um, it's not uncommon for our alum to move to different TFA partner schools. 
um, depending on the leadership opportunities that are available there um, and then also lifestyle factors as well for them as well. Mm. And how does, um, can you paint a bit of a picture about how uh, the kind of difference in opportunities that students at these schools get while they're studying can then go on to influence their lives after they graduate? Yeah, sure. So as in, do you mean... um, I mean the high school students, like what's the kind of like long-term impact of this educational inequity? So again, really complex, really multifaceted. It can mean different things for different students. Um, In many of our partner schools, they are below the national minimum standard in numeracy and literacy. Um, And so I'm sure all of your listeners have heard about NAPLA and that's measured through that. Um, We also find that there's differences in access to pre-schooling pathways. Um, So receiving a degree or diploma, um, a grad certificate, for example, that very much differs um, in terms of the educational opportunities that people face. Um, And then, of course, as you can imagine, it's also in regards to um, the life outcomes of people outside of just uh, education. I will add as well that when we talk about educational opportunities, we place in secondary schools. um, And so I was talking there about more uh, kind of senior secondary outcomes. Uh, Educational disadvantage can also manifest quite early in people's lives as well. So Mm. um, being ready for school is also uh, something that's uh, an indication of whether uh, the school uh, or the students of the school are are ready to learn. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the statistics of the top of my head maybe you can help me out but I you know just through observation it does seem like a lot of the students at our tertiary institutions do probably come from the more advantaged (laughs) areas of our state rather than the disadvantaged ones so yeah in that sense I think what you're talking about is really important um yeah absolutely mm. uh so you've released a new postcode tool can you tell us a bit more about that Yeah, certainly. So um, we have been able to access data from the Dropping Off the Edge research that was produced by the Jesuit Social Services and Catholic Social Services Australia in 2015. Um, So just want to say thank you to those two organisations for letting us access their data. Um, The Dropping Off the Edge research identified broad areas of disadvantage in Australia. Uh, We have then taken seven of those indicators to distill it down to uh, educational measures um, and show how different postcodes in the country compare in terms of educational opportunities available to the population in that postcode. So um, those seven educational indicators that I referred to have been aggregated into an overall rank. Um, And if you go to our website, uh, teacheraustralia.org, you can access our postcode tool and see how your postcode or uh, neighbouring postcodes around Australia um, have different levels of educational opportunities. Right. And what was the reason you guys made this tool? Who do you imagine are the users? So everyone, it's a tool for the general public. Um, we wanted to create a platform to raise awareness of educational disadvantage across the country. We wanted to show its complexity um, and how corrosive it can be. Um, we wanted to essentially dial up the volume of the conversation uh, about the issue, but also about what can be done uh, to address this. Mm. Yeah, I imagine it would be quite powerful for policymakers to have a look at that and see you know, how real <laughs> these problems are. Yes, that, that's very much our hope. Is there a risk that people will use it to try to avoid areas of disadvantage? 
So when we set out to um, produce this tool, it was definitely never in a way that would look to name and shame um, communities. Uh, I think it's important to note that we don't see the people living in postcodes that the tool would notice disadvantage um, as being uh, intrinsically disadvantaged themselves. Uh, it's certainly a circumstantial element. Um, so whilst it is a risk, uh, we are very hopeful that this tool will be used in a way where it sheds light on the extent of the problem um, and compels people to take action against it. And so what what do you see from the data? Are there um, common threads about the places that are facing disadvantage? Yeah, so if you have a look at our tool, as I said earlier, you can just see that it's a really complex, multifaceted issue. Um, not surprisingly, I would say we see that regional areas can particularly face barriers to educational opportunities, but you also see that this problem isn't just restricted to those rural postcodes. Um, I'd say in terms of what Teacher Australia's learned... Oh, I guess I'd flip that and say we actually just didn't build the tool for us. Um, we built it for the general public to become more familiar with the geographic layout of educational inequity. Um, if you have a look at it, sometimes it's quite surprising um, in terms of particular postcodes, access to educational opportunities. Mm. And, and do you have any like research or um, stories about how that kind of inequity maybe comes about or came about in the past? So lots of different ways. Um, we, in terms of the student populations that tend to uh, go to our partner schools, um, there's many from low-income backgrounds, um, from refugee asylum seeker backgrounds, um, from Indigenous Australian backgrounds, um, and then, uh, as we've discussed already, from regional and rural Australian backgrounds. Um, that's kind of to distill it down. As I said, educational disadvantage uh, is pretty multifaceted and so it can manifest in many other ways as well. Um, and, and in terms of the funding for these schools, are they all kind of eligible for similar levels of funding from the government? Uh, I can't speak to the specifics of that. Um, we don't engage heavily in the, the funding debate, um, but uh, as your listeners may be aware, with the uh, Gonski report, there's ongoing conversation in Australia about funding for schools um, and, and funding for students of high need. You mentioned that the you got the data from the dropping off the edge um, report. Is there is that what was that report? Was the how do you know how the data was collected for that report? Yeah, so it was uh, the report was produced in two thousand and fifteen, um, and they accessed the most recently available data at the time. Um, from an education perspective, there was seven indicators um, of the overall 22 um, that represented broad areas of disadvantage. Um, I, I won't list all of them, but for example, um, and we touched on this before, uh, data to, that we've then aggregated to indicate educational opportunities has come from things like a uh, proportion of all children tested for um, being ready for school or being developmentally vulnerable um, for school within a particular postcode. Um, numeracy and literacy outcomes were also considered. So um, looking at students in Year 3 and Year 9 who were not at or above the national minimum standard for um, numeracy and literacy, and then also looking at things uh, at elements such as uh, students in a postcode who uh, left school before the age of fifteen. All right, and so was the report about education specifically, or was it about disadvantage 
socioeconomic disadvantage more generally? It was about disadvantage more broadly. Um, It's a fantastic uh, report. If uh, anyone wants to have a look at it, Dropping Off the Edge um, is the website there. Um, And we've just honed in on the educational indicators that they collected. Right. And so you guys, um, obviously your main uh, area of, of, of work is, is placing teachers in um, schools that are disadvantaged. Um, how do you see this tool working, working with you as an organisation? So it's to raise awareness to the issue of educational disadvantage. So it helps us um, shed light on this. I think in a first world country, sometimes, um, as the tool shows, depending on where you live, um, it can be quite hard to see the corrosiveness of this issue. Um, and so you referenced before, um, being able to have this conversation with policymakers is, is one way it can be used. But in addition to that, we're also hoping that it compels people who have a strong sense of social justice, um, who believe in the transformative power of education, um, who are looking to pay it forward to actually want to become involved in our program and be part of the movement to achieve educational equity. Um, and so if any listeners, if that uh, piques any listeners' interest, then strongly encourage them to have a look at our website, teacherstraya.org. Um, applications for our leadership development program are open at the moment. Uh, they close on August 25th. And so if you could see this uh, pathway as something that uh, resonates with your passions and your sense of social justice, then we'd love for you to apply. Mm. And what kind of um, program would those applicants be looking at doing if they were accepted? Yeah, so we call it our leadership development program. Um, it is a highly selective program, so we need to make sure that we can place people who will be able to absolutely hit the ground running um, for students that need them the most as their classroom uh, teacher. The duration of the program is two years. So for a two-year period, uh, people will work as a teacher in a secondary school based on the and teach the subjects that they studied at university um, while they'll actually receive quite significant training and support to become qualified as a teacher. Um, So there's uh, ongoing training throughout the program with particularly intensive periods um, where people will come together within their regions. Um, And then the support that people receive is uh, extensive. So I've actually done the program myself. Um, I went through in 2013, 2014. And speaking from personal experience, um, I had a teaching and leadership advisor. We call them. They're our teacher coaches. Uh, they would come into my classroom regularly over the course of the term. They would observe me teach. They would debrief with me afterwards. Um, they are available to have conversations about all facets of school life and supporting student outcomes, um, which was a, a pretty integral part of the program to ensure that we're developing people who are not just surviving in pretty challenging schools but thriving. Mm. And was it was it personally, you know, in your experience, challenging to go into schools and kind of learn how to be a teacher and and do the job at the same time? Yes, it was. Um, This program is designed for people who are looking for a challenge. We're pretty unapologetic about that. Um, I would say, though, that the level of personal growth um, and the level of just really rewarding connections that I built with my students were far outweighed the challenges. Um, I myself actually grew up in quite a rural area of Victoria. Um, I went to one of our partner schools. um, And so the school that I then taught at wasn't dissimilar to that. Um, And so it wasn't, I guess, a surprise to me, the environment that I was working in. 
Um, but as I said, that reward um, and that sense of personal growth um, as well as a, a very direct feeling uh, of improving student outcomes very much made it one of the most, uh, I would say, joyful experiences I've ever had in my life. Mm. And, well, considering that I doubt that you would agree with this, but one of the criticisms of programs such as these is that these schools actually need students, uh, need teachers who um, are not beginner teachers and not teaching for the first time. What would you say to that? Yeah, I can understand why people would say that. I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I think as well, though, the reality is we only place in two vacancies. So um, our associates go into schools who are struggling to find teachers, um, irrespective of years in the classroom. Um, and so there's a gap. Um, there isn't experienced teachers or even beginning teachers uh, that are necessarily looking for employment at the schools that we place in. Um, and so we would see part of our role in, in helping to address that gap in schools, um, as I've said before, particularly in certain subject specialisations. Mm. Yeah. And, and why do these schools find it so hard to get teachers that want to teach there? Lots of different reasons, again. Um, some of it is location, uh, as you can imagine, the, the population is obviously more heavily in metro areas um, and not a lot of people want to relocate. So that's one area. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to say that there's, uh, I think, a perception that working in these schools may be more challenging. Um, so we also contribute to, I guess, uh, having conversations about that. Um, raising the status of the teaching profession is something that's also very important to us there as well. Mm. And so this will probably have to be our last question. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But on this topic, does it call into question at all the conventional logic about how we train our teachers? Because the Masters in Teaching is really, um, you know, it has these moments of, of placement, but a lot of it is very academic. And this is a very different system. And if it's working, then why do we send so many teachers through Masters of Teaching? I wouldn't say it calls it into question. I would just say that it shows that there's not necessarily one pathway uh, for someone to move into the classroom. So we very much respect um, and recognise the value of people who go through traditionally trained courses. Um, but we would also say that it's not the only way to produce teachers who um, are able to shift the dial for students um, who are quite vulnerable. Um, and so as part of, I guess, the movement that Teacher Australia contributes towards and sees itself a part of, we see ourselves standing in unity with teachers from all backgrounds um, and from all different types of schools. Mm, yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been really interesting to find out more about what you guys do and all the issues that are behind it. Not a problem at all. Thank you for having me. So Emily Pearson there from Teach for Australia and you're listening to City Limits and this is 3CR and we're going to have a little break and we'll be back with our next interview.
Welcome back to City Limits on 3CR. Um, Meg, Kimber uh, and myself, Eugenia, are in the studio and we're talking to Hannah from the Centre of Public Integrity. How are you, Hannah? Hey there, how are you going? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. Yeah, so do you want to maybe just start by telling us a little bit about the Centre for Public Integrity and what it was set up to achieve? Sure. So the Centre for Public Integrity is a new independent think tank that's set up to uh, prevent corruption, eliminate undue influence of money in politics and protect our accountability institutions. Um, so we're, we're an anti-corruption um, public integrity centre. And, and who... So how does it work? You've got people that you're working with to make... push for new policy or what is the... What so is we're the a research think tank. Um, we're a research institute. Um, and so... Basically, the centre is a collaboration of experts, retired judges, former corruption fighters, um, and you know academics. So, so basically, we're collaborating with experts to research both the weaknesses in our system that allow the risk of corruption to increase, but also some of the potential solutions um, to to corruption risk, and that and that includes policy reform in areas such as a National Integrity Commission or donations and lobbying reform. So it's, it's a research think tank with, with a, a broad focus on, on how we can uh, curb the risk of corruption. And mm. you've got some pretty big-name people involved in terms of former judges and people who've been on integrity commissions in states and things like that, is that right? Yeah, so on the board we have um, a really great board, which I'm lucky to work with. We've got... Tony Fitzgerald, who 
ran the Fitzgerald inquiry into police corruption in Queensland during mm. the Joe Biaki Peterson era. Um, we've got David Itt, who is, ran the ICAC inquiry into Eddie O'Bee, Denise MacDonald, um, and Geoffrey Watson, who assisted him on that inquiry, um, and a range of other retired judges and uh, academics and lawyers. So it's, I think the important thing for me is to get the direct experience of those retired judges and former commissioners because they have run these inquiries at a state level and so they know what corruption looks like day to day and they know how to deal with it in some ways. Like they know how to investigate it and they know what policies and what reforms are needed to allow that work to happen because they've got direct experience of it. Mm. And and what does corruption look like? Like, can you paint a bit of a picture for listeners about how much of a issue it is in Australia? Yeah, I mean, corruption is a very complex um, issue, and the difficulty at a national level is that we don't really know mm. if corruption exists because we don't have a national integrity commission to investigate and expose it so you know it could be going on and we wouldn't know at a state level there's been many cases exposed of um yeah for example the the B and mcdonald case um where uh there were mining licenses given out without without proper processes um you know to 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 people that were going to benefit from it. So mm. sometimes it happens, yeah, in the distribution of licences and permits where um, politicians put private interests above the public interest, um, whether that's friends or families or networks of theirs that they're prioritising over the interests of the public. Um, but federally, we really need to get a National Integrity Commission set up so that we can find out if it's happening federally, it, the anti-corruption commissions that are active at a state level in New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria mm. have exposed very serious cases of corruption at a state level. So, you know, it's one of my board members likes to say, why would the air suddenly clear around Canberra? Mm. Like, why would Canberra <laughs> be free from that? Particularly because in federal government there is much larger budgets, mm. a greater concentration of power, um, that, you know, the ingredients are there for corruption to happen. Mm. Do you think that it's a bit of a cultural thing as well where people are friends with powerful people and they think, hey, can you just do this thing? And do you think that there's a kind of an attitude like, well, why not? You know, like how do they define, you know, what is and isn't wrong do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's a it's a live debate in yeah. terms of the policy about how you define corrupt conduct. Yeah. Um, uh, and our position is that it should be defined as any conduct of any person that affects the impartial decision-making or honest decision-making of public administration. Right. Um, which is very broad and, and seeks to encapsulate yeah, any instance where 
private vested interests are put above the public interest. I guess with the caveat that it, for, in order for an integrity commission to investigate it, it needs to be serious or systemic conduct. So, right. you know, there's a lot of politicians who are scared that their misuse of cab charges or whatever <laughs> would be pulled up. But it's like, sure, that's not the most honest way to spend public money, but it's not the kind of conduct that a federal anti-corruption commission would be investigating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of you know, defining it, I'm definitely not an expert, but I imagine if if there's stuff going on that politicians don't want the public to find out about, that <laughs> automatically a puts a question mark over that yeah, particular activity. That, yeah, that hits on a, a real issue in this area, which is that the public has the right to know. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's nothing wrong going on, then, the, then government shouldn't be scared to tell mm. the public. Because really, like... Government's there to represent us. We elect them, we pay them. Mm-hmm. They're there to work on our behalf. Mm. And has you that... know, the, the term public servant is kind of thrown around um, as a, a term for anyone that works in government. But if you look at the words, like they're a servant of the public, you know, so if you mm. look at it that way, then the public's right to know and public interest should be first and foremost. And so the before the federal the last federal election, the crossbench forced the government into agreeing to an integrity commission, basically a federal integrity commission. And there was quite a lot about it. But um, you know, some people out there might be thinking, "Oh, well, we've got a federal integrity commission now," but it's not quite that simple, is it? No. So the government agreed to set one up because, um, which is good, because before that they. Um, they didn't even agree that we needed one. Um, <laughs> so they've agreed that we need one. They've agreed to set one up. There's, there's money in the budget, um, but they haven't. They don't plan to legislate on it this year. Right. Um, so we don't know when uh, they're going to do it. Um, and the other main problem is that um, the, the model that they've suggested is extremely weak. So it's a, it's a toothless watchdog and it won't actually be able to do um, any of the work that it's set up to do. It won't be able to investigate or expose corruption. What are the limitations on it compared to the ones that are that work well? So... It's basically the worst commission in the country. Um, it's like weaker than any other state models, and we have some state models that are pretty weak. Um, it's all sounding very fishy to me, Hannah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it can't hold public hearings. Um, the public can't even make complaints to it. Um, oh. it. It doesn't have the full investigative powers of a royal commission, like they can't. Um, call up witnesses um, and compel them to give evidence. Um, the jurisdiction is very limited, so it's just about criminal corruption. It's not, mm. so as we were talking about before, corruption, you know, broadly defined is anything that puts the um, public, private interest above 
public interest, mm. whereas the government's model would only be able to investigate where there's a, a crime. Yeah, um, def- as defined so, by, like, yeah, police. So, or, yeah. The experts that I work with and the retired judges think it shouldn't even be called an anti-corruption commission. <laughs> Not. What, should, what do they think it should be called? Um... They haven't suggested a former name, but I, I thought of um, corrupt cover-up as one name. <laughs> I'm going to get the judges to sign a, 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 a red herring. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so the problem is that then the commission becomes a way of hiding, hiding corruption because the public uh, thinks that right. the public thinks that there's something that is being dealt with. Yeah, yeah. That if um, there was something there, then it would find it and. It's and if it doesn't, it. then it there yeah, must be nothing there. there. When in reality, it's all a cover up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and you know, politicians can get up and refer issues to this commission, but um, it, it won't be able to investigate it. But they can say, "Oh, the commission can't invest." You know, won't investigate. Right. That's obviously not an issue. Right. But it's not an issue because it's not within the bounds of what they've decided they yeah, can exactly. investigate. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> clever. And do you have any um, models, any good models from other places, you know, other state, the state level ones or from other countries even of how this could work well? Yeah. Um, so I worked with the Committee of Retired Judges to design a strong anti-corruption commission um, and we set out six or seven design principles um, that basically, basically outline that it needs to have a broad jurisdiction to investigate any conduct that affects the impartial decision-making of public administration. It needs to be able to investigate public servants and politicians, but also anyone seeking to influence them. Um, And that includes situations where there's a, a public servant or a politician acting innocently, but they're acting on the advice of um, businesses who might be colluding together. So, so mm. the corrupt the corruption's there. It's not directly involving the politician or the public servant because they they don't know about it. But mm. so that commission needs to be able to investigate those third parties that may be colluding to get outcomes in their favour. Mm. Um, it needs to be able to have public hearings to expose corruption. It needs to have the full investigative powers of a, a royal commission, um, and it needs to have an independent commissioner appointed by bipartisan committee so that mm. um, both part, all sides of politics trust the commission, commissioner to do, it, do their job and, and give them the, the freedom needed to do that. Mm, that sounds very reasonable. <laughs> very um, yeah. robust. Yeah. Eugenia really wanted to ask. We don't have much more time, <laughs> Hannah, but Eugenia really wanted to ask about Crown. Yeah. I was, I was um, hearing this morning on the radio about how the um, the government is kind of suggesting that this uh, Crown scandal should be investigated by an investigatory body whose powers are limited to investigating um, the police force and law yeah, enforcement. Yeah, so they've referred, they've referred the Crown case to ACLI, which is the Centre for Law Enforcement Integrity, um, and that body has never held a public hearing um, never runs any kind of public inquiries of this kind. Mm. 
and it's and it's not even allowed to investigate the ministers involved themselves, right? Um, no, I don't think so. ACRI's jurisdiction is is limited to law enforcement bodies generally, mm. so it's pretty weird that the government <laughs> tried to refer this because it's not or suspicious. <laughs> it's not a law. You know, there's not as far as I can tell, there's not law enforcement bodies involved. Yeah. Um, right. And so this is probably a pretty good example of where a national commission. Yeah, exactly. Could and I, and it's been great. Like Andrew Wilkie was on the radio this morning, and and mm. the crossbench um, MPs are going to hold a press conference um, in mm. about forty five minutes. Um, you heard it here height, first, listeners. Heightening, yeah. <laughs> heightening the call for a federal anti corruption commission, and um, I think. It's, it's, it's a great example of the kind of cases that need to be investigated with an independent mm-hmm. anti-corruption commission that has the, the full powers needed to do its job. Mm. Wow, well, that's a pretty good note to leave it on, I guess. And listen for listen out for the for the press release. Did you say a press conference? Yeah, they're holding mm. a press conference in Canberra. Mm. Um, mm. Well, that's great. Good luck with the Centre for Public Integrity. Hannah, Thank thanks for joining um, us. Listeners can find out more about the Centre on our website. It's publicintegrity.org.au. Great. Thanks, Hannah. That's Hannah Orby from the Centre for Public Integrity. You've been listening to City Limits. What's on next week, mate? Well, it's going to be the first Wednesday of the month. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be transport. Mm. Yeah. John McPherson and Kevin. Everyone's going to be here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everyone. See you next time. I don't know a lot about you, but you seem to know a lot about me. So I take a little time out. I take a little time.